right, welcome to church. Take a seat, maybe give somebody a high five. You guys know we have a nine o'clock service. Just want to tell you that. If you don't want somebody sitting on your lap at church next week, feel free to come to the nine. Um, welcome. Hey, who's here for the first time? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey, um, we say this around the Red Rocks family, and I, I love, I didn't come up with the saying, but I love it. You're not crashing the party coming here today. You're the guests of honor. So thank you for being here. We prayed that you would be here. We pray as a church that people that are debating whether they want to go to church or not, people that get invited by a friend or Google churches in Austin or scrolling through Instagram, that you would find us, that you would come here, not to fill a room with people, to say we filled a room with people, but so you can experience God and find this amazing family that we have here. So we're glad that you're here. It's a perfect time to be jumping in. We've got exciting things going on. You heard about a new building that we're moving to while we're cherishing our last weeks in this building. And um, it's so exciting to think of the parking lot and an auditorium with a lot more space where you're not crammed on these really uncomfortable wooden chairs every week and a huge kid's wing. But I think also for people who've been around for a little while, there can be this fear of, are we going to lose what we have right now? Like we have this amazing family feel and this heartbeat, this church plant, this grittiness. Are we going to lose that? When you hear big building, room to grow, more people, we naturally can think, are we just going to become another church, people in, people out, just trying to fill seats? All we care about is the attendance count, and we're going to lose the passion and the joy and the family that we have now. And so I'll address that with three things. The first thing is no. The second thing is that... It, it's all of us together, not just a few of us, but realizing that actually the, the job is not going away because we don't have to set up and tear down. It's getting bigger and better and more important because we can be focused less on tasks and more on people. There's people who walk into this building every single week depressed, anxious, alone, wondering why the heck they're alive. And it's you guys who grab them and say, hey, I see you right here, right now. What's your name? You're part of this family now. People's lives have changed in the past year because of that. So we need a more robust hospitality team, more people with our kids making this family grow. Help us to be a small church with a lot of people. People have told us, oh, we, we used to go to that church, but we like Red Rocks because it's small, which I get and also is kind of demeaning to say that some pastor's trying to grow a church. But, but I get it. And my question always back is, okay, but what if we grow? Are you going to leave and go find another small church, or do you want to root yourself here and have more groups and play more sports and get to know more people and serve and go talk to people one-on-one -on -one because it takes all of us collectively, and that's what we're going to do as a church family. And the most important thing as we're moving into a new phase as a church, a new season, is that we keep the main thing the main thing, which is Jesus, that we don't lose sight of that, that we don't Forget our first love, which you see that on the merch, this phrase, first love. And if you thought that came from a romantic comedy or something, it actually comes from Revelation. And you're like, we're starting church off in Revelation. This is going to be an interesting day. The funny guy is going to talk about Revelation. Where's Ryan? Isn't he the smart one? Shouldn't he be break? No, not that smart. Not really. But I'm not going to break down all of Revelation. I, I promise you that. I can't. But we are going to look at this passage where first love comes from. We're going to dig into this because it's crucial for us as a church right here and right now. So here's a little backstory. John 
not John the Baptist, but John the fisherman, the disciple, he wrote Revelation. Same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, and then three letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then writes this, which he titles Revelation. A little more creative towards the end of his writing career with his titling. Like if you had the, like the account of Jesus and you wrote it all down, your title is just John, that's my name, just call it John. Call it like a series of extremely fortunate events followed by seemingly unfortunate events that turned out to be even more fortunate events than we ever thought. Like something cool out of the tomb, I don't know, call it John. So then he finishes this last one, seals it up, gives it to his agent, Revelation. Let's end on, let's end on a creative note. I, I know that that's not how this works. So anyway, he, he has this vision from God, and he writes it down. It's this wild vision. It has a lot of, a lot of moving parts going on, and, and he writes it down. And here's something you got to know about John off the bat. John was Jesus' best friend. Just ask him, and he would tell you. All through his gospel, the beloved one. John, the one that Jesus loved, he refers to himself all the time. And the one that Jesus loved was there. Me, John, I'm him. In case you thought Peter was Jesus' best friend, don't get that wrong. Me, John, I was his best friend. He was Jesus' best friend. So he lives this life. At this point, he's later on. He was the last living disciple. And he has this wild vision. And he writes it down. And he sends it to seven churches in Asia. And in the beginning of it, he gives his greeting and kind of his intro, and then he addresses the churches themselves specifically, and he starts with the church in Ephesus, the same church that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. That's the same church he's talking to. And here's what he says, Revelation 2, verse 2. I know all that you've done for me. You have worked hard and persevered. This is from the perspective of Jesus. I know that you don't tolerate evil. You have tested those who claim to be apostles and proved they are not, for they were imposters. I also know how you have bravely endured trials and persecutions because of my name, yet you have not become discouraged. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the beginning, or some translations, you have forgotten your first love. You're doing great at all the church stuff, but you've forgotten why you're doing the church stuff, which is really easy to do. As a church, and as individuals, and he, he's calling them out on it. And so we're going to dig into this, rooting our lives in that first love individually, because a church who keeps their eyes on their first love, who doesn't lose sight of their first love, is made up of individuals who keep after their first love. And that's who we want to be. And so the title of this message is Love, Live, Laugh. And some of you have a tattoo of a similar phrase, or maybe you bought like an $800 cardboard sign from Magnolia that says this on it, and then you put it in your kitchen. I understand that this is not the order that it's normally in, but this is the correct order of how we need to live. So we're going to dig into that. Now, when I hear this verse, when I've heard pastors start going down that you've forgotten your first love scripture, my, I panic. I'm like, oh, no, they're right. Oh, no. Um, I, life got busy, God, we're doing this whole church thing, and we got a new building, and that's been crazy, and I, I need to spend time with my family, I'm not doing enough of that, and then I've got my friends, and Doug and Ryan, they're desperate to always hang out with me, like, I've got so much stuff going on, and I've lost sight, I'm sorry, I blew it, I'm the worst. It feels to me like, in The Lion King, 
Mufasa calling out Simba from the stars, right? Simba, you have forgotten me. Do I, I sound just like, it's crazy. <laughs> you have forgotten who you are and so forgotten me. Doug could keep going for the rest of the movie. We're building this 167 somehow has been being built on the Lion King as well, but it feels like that. And Sim was like, no, no, no. No, no, no. I was watching this in a cafe while I was preparing this message and then thought after a little bit, like, there's probably people walking around like, you see that adult over there? He's in this cafe just watching the Lion King on his computer by himself. <laughs> cool. Glad none of you saw me. So... But, but this actually is a pretty sound depiction of this kind of call out. Because he doesn't say, Simba, you've forgotten what to do. He says, you've forgotten me. You've forgotten who you are because you're my son. You're royalty. You forgot me. You forgot who you are. And, and, and I feel that call out. And I, like I said, I, I panic. It's the same feeling I get when I talk to another guy who's married. And I say, hey, how's marriage going? Oh, it's beautiful just been really intentionally dating my wife. And I'm like, awesome, thanks, cool, I'm a terrible husband. Like, I feel that in that moment, like, I'm not doing enough, I'm not showing my wife enough love, I'm not romantic enough, we've got this intentionally dating his wife guy calling me out. I need to get that feeling back, like that first love feeling, that's how I feel when I talk to that guy. I need to get that feeling back of that first love. So who, whoever's married in here, you know, like, you, you first meet, and you just can't, like, leave each other alone. You've got that feeling. Steph and I met in 2013, and uh, she's here. If you don't believe in God, maybe you will after you see us next to each other and try to reason how I married her without an act of God. We started dating truly because God, I think, just, like, started diminishing her standards right in that moment. <laughs> so anyway, I wasn't going to argue with him. So we start, we're dating. It's going well. My friends continually reminding me that they're just baffled this is happening. And I knew the first kiss was coming. And you got to play this right. Because if you rush it, then you're going to come on too strong and maybe push her away. But if you wait forever, she's going to be like, I don't think he's into me. Which I was. I was all in. So I'm uh, thinking through this. You're, you're like a neurotic, crazy person when you're dating, right? You overthink everything you do. How am I sitting at dinner right now? How's my posture? I've never thought about my posture. What, what's my posture like? And, and am I smiling too much? Do I have food in my teeth? Why did I order that? Should I go to the bathroom and check my teeth? But if I'm in there for too long, then she's going to think, I can't go to the bathroom. How's my driving on the way home? I, I, am I driving like confidently, but not like a road rage aggressive guy, but I'm not a coward. Like, does she know that? Is she laughing because I'm funny? Or is she just humoring me or laughing at me probably? Maybe you're, maybe you're sane. Imperfect people here at this church, starting up here. And that's how my brain worked, especially going into this first kiss. I'm like, this has to go perfectly. So one night, we're sitting in my Honda Civic. I had just played in a slow-pitch softball game, so she saw that I was an athlete. <laughs> able to jog 60 feet to first base. The parking lot had emptied out, good music's playing. I'm like, this is the moment, here we go. We're like leaning a little closer, if you can do that in a Honda Civic. And all of a sudden, I'm like, this is it. I feel this like courage. I'm going to kiss her. And right as I start leaning over, the brightest light just shines straight into my face. And for a split second, I'm like, God, are you stopping this from happening to spare this poor girl? I get it. I knew this was too good to be true, but it was actually a police officer. 
And he, he, for some reason, went over to Steph's side of the car in an empty parking lot. He was probably intimidated by a guy who drove that Civic. So <laughs> we roll her window down. I'm looking at him like, hello, officer. Great time to see you. How can I help you? Probably just ruined my life, and I'm going to die alone. Nice to meet you. And he's like, uh, what are you kids doing? I'm like, we're adults, and we're literally just talking thanks to you. Can we hustle this up? The moment is leaving us, officer. And he's like, well, there's a park curfew. I'm like, we're adults. And he's like, it applies to everyone. I'm like, okay, we'll leave. He's like, let me see your IDs. So we give him our IDs. He's in his car for like an hour, just killed the whole mood. And uh, he comes back. He's like, all right, we'll just get out of here. You're good to go. Give us our IDs back. And then does something that I will never forget. He shines his flashlight straight into my face and just like looks at me. And then shines it into Steph's face, looks at her, back to me and says, you're doing well for yourself, son. <laughs> and goes and gets in his car and drives away. I'm, I'm not kidding. You can ask Steph. That happened. Which Doug said, like, if you tell, like, a guy that he's dating up or married up, it's a compliment. Not so much if you tell a girl that. But in that moment, I was kind of like, hey, we all are aware of the gap here, man. You may, I'm trying to kiss her. Can we not make that so apparent right now? But at the same time, I'm like, this cop is basically telling me to kiss her. He's like, dude, this girl's in the car with you. She's, she's dating you. Kiss her. Why are you overthinking everything? Why are you so insecure? Kiss her. So I did, right as he was driving away. We didn't leave that parking lot right away. <laughs> Had our first kiss. It was awesome. And I drove home from that like I could have run through a wall. I was on fire. I got to our house. Doug and I were living with a couple buddies down in Denver. Middle of the night, don't care, opened Doug's door. Doug, wake up. I kissed Stephanie. And he shot awake as if, like, I was like, Doug, somebody just gave us a million dollars. Or like, hey, someone's in our house to kill us. He was, like, awake, uh, excited, pumped for me, blown away, believing more and more in God. And <laughs> at the same time, I had forgotten that Doug was sharing a room with our buddy Zach so we could pay less rent. Zach, on the other side of the room, also woke up, woke up to the news. He had to get up early for work and still to this day holds against us that we were, quote, giggling like girls. But whatever, Zach, I was in love, right? Like, that's that first love feeling. You could run through a wall. Love, that love transcends every part of your life, all of it. And so years later, life's been up and down. It's been hard. We had a kid. Like, I talked to intentionally dating his wife guy, and I'm like, oh, no. We got to get back to that night. We got to get back to that feeling. And so here's how I'm prone. I'm an acts of service, five love language guy. I'm probably an extreme example of how all human beings are really geared when it comes to relationships. We get this call out. You've lost sight of like the love here. So here's what I do. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help more around the house. I need to spend more time helping with our son. Uh, I'm gonna do some creative date nights. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this and do this and do this. And what I'm really doing is showing my wife that I'm good at doing chores for her. Not so much that I love her necessarily. Like, the intention is there and the motive is good, but I'm, I'm actually, I'm realizing, chasing a feeling, not a person. I do that in my relationship with God all the time. You've forgotten your first love. Okay, 
I'm sorry, life got crazy, it got busy. I'm going to set this right. I'm going I'm to read five chapters a day this week. I'm going to pray for 30 minutes. I'm going to serve somewhere. I'm going to help somebody. Here, here we go, God. And he's, he's kind of looking at me like, remember how you keep doing this cycle of doing all these things but forgetting why you're doing them because you're just doing them to try to conjure up a past feeling? You're trying to get back to the college days when everything was, go, you know, go, what's the word I'm trying to say? We'll just go with on fire, excited, gung-ho, found it. I'm trying to chase that feeling, and I'm not chasing Jesus. Does that make sense? It's led me to like a crisis in my faith. I think the question that I ask myself more often than anything else, which is transparent and probably weird for you to hear a pastor say, but do I love Jesus? I believe in him. I know he's good. I've seen everything he's done in my life. I'm, I'm not a very emotional person. Maybe that plays into it. But I ask myself, do I love him, though? And as I was preparing this sermon even, I, I realized that my intention in the beginning was I just need to get back to that feeling and just kind of breathe that into our church so we can all just get fired up and realize I've been doing that for 10 years and still coming back to this question. Maybe I've had something wrong or backwards. Maybe I've been chasing a feeling, not chasing a person. We need to chase the person and cherish the feeling along the way. Because 10 years from now as a church, We'll be just like the guy who always just brags about his party days in college, and that was like the peak of his life. If we're always saying, oh, man, back at Gather, that's when it was for real. Set up and tear down. Man, we were on fire. We had this passion. We got to get that back. We'd be chasing the feeling that we have right now instead of cherishing the moment we're in with Jesus right then. We as human beings are so prone to sacrifice the present moment, what he's doing right here and right now to try to recapture something that's already happened. And so as I was thinking about the shift I need to make in my faith, I was thinking about my relationship with my wife, that while that, like, feelings come and go, and we had that feeling, you know, that night in that parking lot, and, and yet I had all these insecurities. I overthought everything I did around her, and I don't do that now. I have something called confidence in the love we have for each other now. It builds more and more through life, through ups and downs. And Yes, I was confident in the fact that I loved her, but I realized that more of my confidence was coming from the realization of her love for me. That's her, and that's imperfect human love, right? And so how does that apply with God? I, the mistake I have made is that I have placed my confidence in my love for him, not his love for me. You need to place your confidence in his love for you, not your love for him. The Bible is not the story of man's love for God. It's the story of God's love for man. But we are so prone to flip that. So I want to illustrate this, this to you. I'm a practical thinker. And I hate thinking that, like, you might hear a message that kind of strikes you, and then tomorrow morning you wake up, and it's like, I don't even remember what they talked about at church yesterday. And so I want to, I, want to, I have some flow charts Stephen made, I didn't make. Flow charts and some graphs we're going to go through. We're going to nerd out here. So um, if we can go to the I need to love God, this is kind of the, the mode or mindset that we get ourselves into. And um, I'll just tell you other. Here it is. So we get that call out, that panicked feeling. I need to love God. I forgot my first love. Well, what's like the tangible thing I know I can do? Well, he said to love my neighbor. You could put in this love my neighbor box like Christian activities. Okay, 
I got to conjure up that feeling. I got to go do things. I got to go tell people that God loves them. I need to, I need to love my neighbor. And what that's going to do is, is conjure up that feeling, that love for God in me. And he's going to look at me and see that I love him because I'm doing all these things. And then he'll love me back, right? We, we know that that's not the message of the gospel. But that's generally how we live our lives, working backwards. We hear, like as kids, we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. But most days of our lives, I don't know if our lives look like we know that. Or all these insecurities or all these things are overtaking us and we have no confidence in his love for us. And so this is how a loving relationship with God should look. It starts with God loves me. I know what I'm saying is not new to most of you, but I want you to actually believe it and live it. In, in John, the same guy who wrote Revelation, in 1 John 4.19, you can write this down, memorize it. You've probably heard it before, seen it on a coffee cup. We love because he first loved us. God loves me. He, he doesn't love you fully and completely because he has love for you. He loves you fully and completely because he is love. It is who he is. And it is only because of him giving his love to you that you're even able to love him back in the first place, which sounds kind of crazy. My son will learn to love people, love my wife and I through learning how we love him. Same kind of thing. We learn, we can only learn to love God through his love for us. Okay. Now you're going to think that I have this backwards because we always should put ourselves last and I get that and I agree. The problem is that we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if you don't love yourself, it's really hard to love your neighbor. And we've got Christians running around all the time trying to do the thing, trying to get the feeling, trying to love their neighbor, but they don't even love themselves because they don't realize that the ability to love God comes from him and it starts with his love for us. Like we're, we're at work or with a, a friend and we're like, hey, uh, I love you so much. God loves you. I hope you know that. God loves you so much. Lunch is on me today. Uh, I just, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? God loves you. God, I, I seem like I love him, don't I? I seem like I love him. And they're like, uh, I don't even believe in God, but can I pray for you? Like, are you okay? Like, what's going on here? Panicked. God loves me. That's where it starts. We can love this city well. If we can love ourselves well because we know that our love for God comes from him. That's where we've got to start. And so with that foundation of the love part of this, now we can talk about how we live. 168 hours in a week. And I may, uh, Stephen made some pie charts to help me to illustrate how I think we view time in the context of a, a relationship with God. So first we have the churchgoer. And I made these kind of a mix of my life categories of time and then averages of time we spend on things. So the churchgoer, we've got the one hour of God time. I go to church. It was great. See you next week, God. Awesome. Average adults sleep seven hours a night. I guess average adults don't have kids, so that's 49 hours a week. Average work week, 40 hours. A lot of you probably work more than that, maybe even to an unhealthy uh, portion of this circle. Hopefully get to the gym here and there. I've got hobbies. The average is an hour spent on Netflix a day, so seven in a week. I don't know if I believe that. I think it's more. Average social media, 17 and a half hours in a week. Yikes. And that, those two probably eat up some of that hobbies time. They probably take some of that time too. Now, dental care, 
seems out of place, but if you've been here for a little while, Doug told you that I'm a passionate flosser. <laughs> Brush twice a day and floss, and if you add that up, it should be about a half hour of your week, okay? That's free. Your dentist thanks me. No one likes to think about the fact we spend about seven hours maybe driving to work, driving around town. Not the most exciting use of time, but it's real eating. We have, you're supposed to have three meals a day, some of us maybe five, maybe seven, myself included. You sit with people, you go out to eat, okay? Family time, social life, relationships, okay? So that's a churchgoer's schedule. And then you start coming to church and you hear about this thing called quiet time. Doesn't sound all that exciting, but what it means is for about half an hour a day, here's the challenge. Go read your Bible and pray this important time you spend with God. So you think, all right, I'm going to give that a shot. So that takes us to the next phase, which is the good Christian. Really, really getting after it now. Four hours of God time a week, which leaves 164 non-God hours. And we'll sacrifice an hour of sleep, an hour at the gym, and we'll just eat a little faster, and we can make that happen. Okay, those are easy to sacrifice. And then after a while, maybe it's like you've been challenged, or you join a group, or you're like, I want to get more passionate about my faith. I want to spend more of this time, because actually, this time is amazing. It's like food to my soul. So we graduate to the next phase, which is the varsity Christian. <laughs> We're talking seven hours of God time a week. That leaves a mere 161 non-God hours in the schedule. Hour-long quiet time. I'm going to go to a worship night or I'm going to a group where I serve. And that all counts as God time, right? That counts as God time. Okay. And I'll sacrifice. I'll even sacrifice from Netflix and social media. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a little less time on there. And just when you think, like, I think I'm doing pretty well with my time with God, you run into intentionally dating his wife guy. 20 hours a week of God time, making us all feel bad. Whoever you are in here, thanks. He only needs six hours of sleep a night because he's a machine. He works, he's budgeted in there, dating his wife time. And somebody pointed out to me at the last service that intentionally dating his wife guy doesn't spend half an hour on dental care, so we all have our flaws. Okay, so 20 hours 20 hours of God time, a mere 148 hours of non-God time. Obviously, I'm being a little sarcastic, having a little fun with this. But I think that's probably how most of us look at our time every week, right? Like, the funny thing to think about is when Steph and I were dating and, like, we'd go to work, we didn't, like, break up. Oh, that doesn't count as time that we're together. We're not together during that time. We'd talk. Or even if we wouldn't talk, we wouldn't start to question, like, do we still love each other? Are we still together? We would go spend time with our friends. It didn't, like, cut the relationship off right there. In fact, what started to happen is that our lives sort of started morphing into one life, became a part of each other's lives. Our, our friendships, we made friends with each other's friends, and we knew about each other's work and our passions, and uh, we, we don't go to the gym together. She does a lot more cardio than I'm willing to do, but, like, we... We became part of each other's lives. Our relationship grew, but yet we section off time with God like, sorry, God, I guess that didn't count. Like, I don't know if what was going on there. As if, like, when I'm at work and my son's at home, he's not my son during that time or something. That's how we kind of view time. And here's how I think we should view time in a loving relationship with God. So this is a fun exercise to do, actually. Um, 
You're like, yeah, make a pie graph. That was fun back in like seventh grade. I loved that. But to think, to like think of your 168 hours and what do you want to spend time on? What do you value? I'd probably make some changes to this, but this is what I came up with. I definitely want to sleep eight hours. I'm just putting that out as a prayer, eight hours a night. And all these things are important to me. And all of it is part of my relationship with God. All of that time. Not just the time when I'm here. Not just the time when I'm reading the Bible. My whole life is in relationship with him. We have to stop dividing God hours and non-God hours in our minds. And our time outside of church or when we're not doing our quiet time or reading the Bible or praying, whatever you want to call it, that shouldn't feel like it stands in opposition to our relationship with him. And so maybe for some people, if you were honest and made an honest pie graph, you would see that there's some time devoted in that week that does stand in opposition to your relationship with God, that you devote time to things that are actually pulling you away from him, and maybe those things need to get cut out of the circle. But even in those times, he's not abandoning you or saying, we're not together anymore. I'm not with you anymore. He's saying, I want to be a part of everything, every sector on this pie graph. And so... When, when we look at some of these specific things, if we can view time as a gift, no matter the category, a gift from God, like think of our relationships. He's made us to be in relationship with each other. That time, it, it glorifies and is worship to him, and we're with friends, having a good time. Or like, I, this, is, this is so weird, but when my son was born, I'd be up in the morning with him and start looking ahead to my day and realize, like, I'm not going to have enough time to, like, read the Bible and pray and stuff before I leave the house because I'm with my son right now and feel guilty about it as if God would be like, hey, why don't you leave your nine-month-old in his room? He'll figure it out. You need to go read your Bible. Like as if that time with my son doesn't count in my relationship with him. While he's given me this gift that I actually learn a ton about his love for me through having this son. That doesn't count. That's, that's how I tend to view time. Work, going to work. It's like we clock into work and clock out of our relationship with God. And yet, even back to Genesis, he made us, designed us to build and create, like to come up with solutions and, and build a company or build a community or, or, just, or just work. We're made to do it. It's part of the human experience, and it's worship to him, work. Sleep. We all know that's a gift from God. We need it. If you don't sleep, you die. He made us to need rest, right? It's a gift from him to relax and rest your body. You've probably heard this uh, passage in terms of like the physical component of being a human being. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So let's talk about exercise. I listened to a TED talk from a neuroscientist who concluded that the most transformative thing you can do for your brain today is to exercise. It improves mood, attention, focus. It builds and, and creates new cells in your hippocampus, which is where your long-term memory is. It builds up your prefrontal cortex. Those two things together, as they grow, they actually protect you against degenerative diseases. It changes ways you think. It improves your mind and your brain. And so I'm reading, I'm hearing that from a scientific perspective. And what I'm hearing from a biblical perspective is that it renews your mind, which is from Romans 12. 
Your mind is renewed through reading scripture, through prayer, through sitting and just listening to what God might say, and through exercise. That time at the gym, though, probably doesn't feel like a gift from God most of the time. It is. We're not like spirits that just float around. We have bodies. And he's designed us to need to play sports and to go on runs and to work. It's part of the experience with him. How about this? Does this sound like, I'm going to read you the benefits of something that we all experience, and you tell me if this sounds like something God would prescribe into our lives, that he would design in us. Something that boosts your immune system, lowers your stress hormones, decreases pain, relaxes your muscles, prevents heart disease, counteracts anxiety and tension, improves mood, and strengthens overall resilience. Something that God would wire us to get to experience and that would have those effects on us. Those are the effects of laughter. Laughter is, a, I love, so I did it, love, live, laugh. You're like, where's the laugh coming in? Because I think laughter is such like just part of life that we don't think of in a spiritual context ever. And yet God designed that within us. You can't really explain why you laugh, but we all love to do it. And it has all these effects on us. Turns out that God is the funniest of all of us. He's got the best sense of humor of anybody in this room, Doug included. All of us. He invented humor. He designed you to laugh. It's a great example of something that we look at and don't even think about in our relationship with him. There was a, a person who wrote an article kind of diving into laughter in a spiritual context and asked a priest about his thoughts on laughter. And he said, the end point of the Christian life is joy. Yet we don't privilege joy as much as we do suffering. There are certain things that are spiritual in our minds and certain things that are not. And here's what's important that you hear today. I'm not diminishing things like suffering. I'm not diminishing the time reading the Bible or praying, sitting in silence. Jesus did those things purposefully, pointedly. They're needed. Those are like the quality time, the date nights, the deep conversations. We need that. I'm not diminishing that. I'm trying to elevate the other 167 hours of your week to show you that it all counts. It's all part of a relationship with God. And a guy I think that, that got this when it was all said and done was John, who wrote Revelation that we've read some things from. We've heard John 3.16, the guy who understood that it was for God so loved the world. He didn't start out that way. We think of the disciples as these like celebrity Christians. Him and his brother, their nickname early on in the ministry was the Sons of Thunder. Not because they had this booming spiritual presence. They were like bulls in a china shop, just destroying things, like the ones that were likely to just blow the whole thing up. To the, like literally in Luke chapter 9, odd that Luke records it, John just happened to not, that they're traveling with Jesus, and they send some guys up to a Samaritan town and say, hey, these guys are coming, can, you, can they stay with you? And everybody there is like, no, we don't want them here. So they report that back to Jesus, and John and his brother here, and they're like, hey, Jesus, should we call fire down from God and torch that place? Jesus is looking at him like, sorry, what? Like, I made you guys. It's hard to shock me, but do you listen to anything I say ever? That was John. We know, like, from tradition that he was this, this man from history, this man that they would take around, and he would just preach about the love of God, the love of Jesus all the time. That's who he became. So how did this son of thunder become the disciple of love. Well, obviously, he saw Jesus in action. 
He saw the ministry moving. He saw miracles and heard him preach. Lived through all that crazy stuff. He was at the cross. Saw Jesus come out of the tomb. Okay, for sure. What we, what we don't think about, because that might seem like, okay, well, he had that experience. We, we weren't there. What we don't think about is that his gospel account mainly just covers one week of three years. The majority of the gospel of John is talking about the night that Jesus is arrested to when he rises from the grave. And there's some highlights before that. We're talking one week. We forget that these guys were traveling together for years. They laughed together, probably raced boats, fishing boats, went fishing, pulled pranks on Peter, sat around a fire and burned stuff because those guys love to do stuff like that. They were friends. And they didn't, like, just have this appointed time that was counted with Jesus. They were just with him all the time. And they had dinner parties. They made friends, and they traveled. They did all this stuff together. And at some point in that experience, in that relationship, I think that John, with all of his flaws and all of his insecurities, I think he realized that somebody would probably walk up to his car and shine a flashlight on his face and then shine it on and see Jesus and back onto John and go, you're doing pretty well for yourself, man. What are you so stressed out about? Relax. This guy's chosen to be in the car with you. So, so go live your life, man. Enjoy it. He's here with you right now. You're doing pretty well for yourself. And his confidence in Jesus' love started to grow as his insecurities shrank. So, so then we start to see him write these things. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Skip to chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So on top of all the experiences, everything he wrote, everything, you wanna know what I think the, the real key was to why John became this man who just got the flow of love? I think it's because he was always reminding himself, hey, I'm John the Beloved. I'm the one that Jesus loves. He loves me. He loves me over and over and over again. And, it, and he believed it. And it actually became his identity. Who he was was founded on, the, on the, the foundation of Jesus saying, I love you, not him saying, I love Jesus. I'm John the Beloved. I'm the one he loves became his identity. Everything he did in his life came from that. And we can laugh about that and kind of make fun of him when we read like, yeah, we get it, man. He really loved you. But look at who he became because he believed it. That love transcended his entire life and every sector of his week, everything he did started with, he loves me. And so as a practical person, I'm tempted to say like, hey, here's a bunch of different things that we can do so we can be like that. But if I tell you a bunch of things to do, you'll probably go do them and forget why you're doing them in the first place, right? So I have one thing, one thing for us to do. Be like John and keep reminding yourself 
He loves me. I'm the beloved one. What's up, God? It's me, your BFFE, best friend for eternity. He loves me. I'm his kid. I'm his beloved one. That's who I am. That's who I am. When you get out of your car and start walking into the gym, he loves me. That's who I am. You sit down to pray, hey, it's me, your beloved one. You go to talk to a friend, and it's going to be a hard conversation. Hey, he loves me. He's here with me. He's in the car. And I think people will look at our lives and go, you're doing pretty well for yourself. Look at who's with you. Look at who's with you, and our confidence will grow. And then we will not only be individuals who don't lose sight of our first love, but we will be a church who this city looks at and says, man, the main thing is the main thing. They stand on a foundation that they're just beloved ones, that he just loves them. People can't help but want to experience that.